Welcome back to Solved Mysteries. Solved, unsolved mysteries. Unsolved, solved mysteries. Jamie Oliver's Mysterious Chicken Masala, whatever the hell this show is called. I appreciate it. I'm so sorry that it took so long to make the second episode, but since the first episode, I visited Japan again. I got married. I quit my job and tons of other stuff that has left me pretty exhausted and uh, it's, it's used all my energy and time. But I'm back and we're demonetized. Fuck. If it's your first episode, congratulations, you're only one off. This is a show where I watch a show and make dumb commentary on it, then I do Googles about the things in the show, then make a podcast about it with the snippets of the show and the commentary for context. That makes sense, right? If you've never seen Unsolved Mysteries before, the little bit of show clips I use are pretty important to understanding what the hell I'm doing, and it really makes more sense to watch the episodes before you listen to the show. Please support the official show on Hulu and Amazon Prime. Anyway, I'm, uh, I still have the flu, uh, but I decided that this needed to be recorded, so this isn't like, it's not going to sound like amazing, but it needs to be done, so hey. I don't expect this podcast to be famous or anything, but a couple few people listened to the first episode and seemed to really like it, so I guess I'm making more of them. If you want other people to listen to it too, you have to send it to them. I'm not well known, and searches and keywords alone might net me a tiny amount of views for each video or podcast I do. So sharing shit and liking it or whatever and mentioning it is the only way to let other people know that it exists. Anyway, I hope my friends that are hearing this now know that I appreciate you. <coughs> oh, goddamn you, virus. Fuck you, fuck you, flu. This time on the podcast, we look at four stories from episode two of Unsolved Mysteries. The Mystery of D.B. Cooper. The Update with John Yount and Diane Broadbeck, which I'll explain more later. The 1987 Mysterious Deaths in Little Rock by Train and the Fraud-slash-Wanted story on Dennis Walker. This episode, thank God, doesn't feature really depressing suicide story this time, but it does feature a murder about two teenage boys by a mysterious killer in the woods, possibly, and one of the greatest mystery heists of all time, and excuses for me to make fun of people who buy expensive baseball cards even though I have a large, organized, and very meticulously kept collection of Pokemon cards, which has to be worse. After like, what, like 17 years, 18 years? Anyway, let's kick it off. The Mystery of D.B. Cooper Whenever possible, the actual family members and police officials have participated in recreating the events. What you are about to see is not a news broadcast. It's not a news broadcast. And this is also not a news broadcast. On November the 24th, 1971, at 8.12 p.m., 10,000 feet above southwestern Washington state, a man forced open the rear doorway of a commercial airliner. <laughs> oh my god, the video from this is so stupid. Excess of 200 miles per hour, he stood briefly on the rear stairwell man known only as D.B. Cooper. Oh my god, D.B. Cooper. 
Oh, well, this story's famous as shit. A man calling himself D.B. Cooper hijacked a 727 airplane, demanded $200,000, and bailed out of the plane money in hand and was never heard from again. Events as depicted in the show. D.B. Cooper is the name a mysterious man went by when he jumped from a 727 airplane at 10,000 feet in the air. <sighs> After taking the plane hostage and demanding $200,000 in cash, no one was sure what the hell happened to the guy. If he died it, if he escaped it, nobody know. So if you've never been on a 727, uh, I've been on the updated version of that, which name I cannot remember. Um, the rear, the very rear tail section of the plane opens down to a uh, escape stairs. As the show depicts, on November 24th, 1971, at 2 p.m., Portland, Oregon, a man wearing a black or fucking blue raincoat and sunglasses purchases plane tickets to Seattle, carrying only a small attache case. Dark, uh, black tie, black raincoat, black uh, shoes. Sounds fucking fashionable, bro. And the actor is wearing a blue raincoat. <laughs> carrying an attache case, he's wearing sunglasses indoors. So he's either a white rapper or he's got some fucking nefarious shit going on. Once on the plane, he then gives a flight attendant a paper note that says he has a bomb in the suitcase. Man, that camera guy is right in his bald spot. The flight crew calls for assistance, and the FBI is contacted. He asks for the 200K and four parachutes. The money and parachutes had to be ready for pickup in Seattle, and the rest of the passengers needed to be in the dark. Around the battery. And he said to me, He's got 10D batteries now. That must weigh 30,000 pounds. Catch this wire to this gadget here, and we all be dead. She saw the bomb, so we know it's for real. <sighs> so, like, by the way, there's a bomb in the plane, and they're like, all right, fine, take off, but they have to take my fucking water bottle. I'm gonna pay three goddamn dollars for a motherfucking water bottle. Fuck you. Cooper's money is actually doled out, and the parachutes are scrounged up, and the plane is refueled. Oh, okay, so they do a stopover in Seattle and refuel. So then they give him his $200,000 cash and four parachutes for some fucking reason. I guess he needs one for himself and one for each of his giant balls and one for his big old dick. Big old swinging dick, the DB stands for Dick's Big $10,020 bills, which the guy says is like 21 pounds, is delivered to the plane. There are some snipers. Now they're going to shoot him in the face. Snipers are actually scrambled, but they end up not shooting anyone's face. The normies leave the plane, and the skeleton crew with D.B. Cooper leaves after D.B. argues with the pilot on whether or not they should take off with the rear exit door of the plane open. If you've ever flown, you know that taking off in a plane and getting the proper elevation with the fucking emergency door open is not going to happen. I am not understanding his plane plan. Their destination is apparently Mexico, but they wouldn't get that far by a long shot. Bourbon of water. You drink a Jack and Coke on a plane, you need to get fucked up, and you need to be awake. Once at altitude, at an approximate location based on his instructions for speed, he opens the rear exit door, walks down the steps, and jumps from the plane. This was still inside Washington State in the southwest region. 
The passengers and flight attendants came together to make a composite drawing of what looks like a child molester. If you're listening to the audio version, just picture in your mind a child molester. Now remove the mustache and priest robes and you've got it. The point where he probably landed was pretty closely approximated and then investigated, but at this point in time, no evidence was found. Life expectancy is not going to be very long in that water. Well, you know, he could be very smart or he could be the guy that wanted the fucking plane to take off with a goddamn door open. To get on shore, but I think he could have done this. Either that or he opened that door and the pressure change caused him to pass out and he just fucking fell out the back, wasting our goddamn tax dollars. Then, years later, a piece of the lower stairwell of a 727 is discovered, 165 miles south of Seattle. Years later still, in 1980, a family having a fun weekend on the beach finds almost $6,000 badly worn by the elements. The show posits that DB could possibly be Richard McCoy, a man that did something very similar later on and was eventually killed in a gunfight with authorities. What? The crime was remarkably similar to the Cooper skyjacking. At the time, Unsolved Mysteries updates us to tell us that the FBI has closed the case due to lack of evidence. Updates after the show. So, it took me a long time to get this second episode out, as I've already mentioned. And since that time, more information about this case has come out. And the day that I sat down to actually write this episode, the first day, it was actually the 46th anniversary of the events of the D.B. Cooper case. Fun. This is super crazy because this case was both closed by the FBI and a documentary crew has gathered to do more cold case style investigation into this story right around the time I accidentally drunk to myself into starting this podcast. Let's go back and mention a few things. At this point, the story is more than 46 years old. The leads are pretty much exhausted and the FBI is very tired of all the stupid wild goose chases that waste time and resources on a crime that didn't seem to cost any actual human life except possibly the life of the actual perpetrator. The very famous composite drawing that you will see if you go into Google Images and type D.B. Cooper or Child Molester isn't quite the same as the newer one made by one of the flight attendants drawn for the production of this episode of Unsolved Mysteries in 1987-ish. Furthermore, D.B. Cooper is actually claimed to be a misreporting of the man's name in the first place. Some sources state that the actual name of the purchaser of the tickets was Dan Cooper, so both the face and the alias are now contested, which is probably why it's been so hard to figure out if this person is even alive or not. A person claiming to be D.B. Cooper wrote a letter addressing the hijacking dated December 11, 1971, only a few weeks after the hijacking. This isn't mentioned in the broadcast because it was withheld until very recently, but it reads as follows. Sirs, I knew from the start that I wouldn't be caught. I didn't rob Northwest Orient because I thought it would be romantic, heroic, or any other sort of euphemisms that seem to attach themselves to situations of high risk. I'm no modern-day Robin Hood, unfortunately do only have 14 months to live. My life has been one of hate, turmoil, hunger, and more hate. This seemed to be the fastest and most profitable way to gain a last few grains of peace of mind. I don't blame people for hating me for what I've done, nor do I blame anybody for wanting me to be caught and punished though this can never happen. Here are some, not all, of the things working against the authorities. I'm not a boasting man. Are you sure about that, buddy? I left no fingerprints. 
I wore a toupee. I wore putty makeup. These could add or subtract from the composite a hundred times and not come up with an accurate description, and we both know it. I've come and gone on several airline flights already and am not holed up in some obscure backwoods town. Neither am I a psychopathic killer. He does use a hyphen there. As a matter of fact, I've never even received a speeding ticket. Thank you for your attention. D.B. Cooper, U.S. Postal Service Stamp, 11 December 1971. Now the story is developing still, and we don't know if D.B. Cooper is the one who wrote this letter, but the letter itself has been traced, allegedly, kind of, to a Vietnam War veteran named Robert W. Rackstraw. But I'll explain that one later, because it's sort of not actually proven and requires understanding of code breaking. <laughs> this is extra tricky, because oftentimes when a famous thief or killer has like a letter released to the public, it's very possible it is actually not written by that person, or at least it cannot be verified and appears dubious, such as the letters involved in the Jack the Ripper killings, if you're familiar with that, and according to who you hear it from, the Zodiac Killer case, aka Ted Cruz. But this letter nevertheless makes the story more interesting, both because it lets us in the psychology of the possible perpetrator and because it possibly establishes a timeline. Firstly, he likes to brag about himself, but pretends to be humble, which means he'd be fit for president. Also, he wants to be sure to let everyone know that the composite sketches are inaccurate, either to brag or to confuse the only decent evidence they had at the time. Furthermore, he mentions only having 14 months to live, which is super weird, because it's either a confession as to why he'd be so brazen, or yet another smokescreen to encourage people to not look for him for very long. Also, according to the show and common knowledge until very recently, D.B. Cooper disappeared completely and no credible source has ever contacted the authorities using that name. But this letter, if it's genuine, would establish that he was able to pull off the heist on November 24th, 1971, and then would write and send this letter out only a few weeks later, postmarked December 11th, 1971. Of course, if the letter is real, it would establish the man's escape to civilization within that time period, feeling well enough after a naked snake virtuous mission-style fucking halo jump to write a smirky little dickbad letter to the fucking authorities. So that pretty much leads us... nowhere. Of course it does, because the case is yet unsolved, and the FBI closed it due to lack of evidence. What the fuck did you think was going to happen on this podcast? But what do we need to solve the case? The letter, as I mentioned, is one of... How many? Thousands of letters that were received on the D.B. Cooper case. But it's the only one that seems somewhat practical and genuine based on its contents and the timing of its original postmark. Because we never had a photo, a hair sample, a real name, or fucking fingerprints of D.B. Cooper, none of that information would be useful here. But also, the fact that no fingerprints could be found at the crime scene was not publicly known outside the FBI until it was mentioned in this very letter. Robert W. Rackstraw. The private in Ugh, Oh my god, my voice is gone now. The private investigation team working with Thomas Colbert for a D.B. Cooper documentary <coughs> fingered Rackstraw some time ago because of, well, his near-perfect fit for this crime. He was a known thief, committed several crimes involving forgery and identity theft, and he was in the area at the time. And? And? multi-branch experience in the U.S. military, including lots of experience doing what? Jumping out of planes and using parachutes, which he didn't even have to learn in the military. 
he was already a hobbyist parachuter as a young man with his uncle, whose name is, wait for it, Ed. Cooper. Why not just ask? Robert W. Rackstraw. They did. Several times. And he cutely responds with shit like, I wouldn't discount myself for a person like myself, and it could have been, asshole. How does the letter match up to Rackstraw? Well, that one is a great example of it being an interpretation based on the kind of mindset you have. It's either perfect proof or a total coincidence. People looking for patterns where there are none and trying to match a person to a crime looking for any angle at all. After all, you might be thinking, why not just show this dick's picture in a lineup to the stewardess on the airplane that had to look at him for several hours? Wouldn't that solve everything immediately? Again! Podcast listener, that's a good point. Imaginary audience member, they already did that in 1978, and the flight attendant failed to pick out his picture in a group. That said, caseworkers claim she had, quote, traumatic memory loss from the stress of the event, and you can yourself look at the composite drawing made by the airline staff and photos of the man, Robert Rackstraw, from around the same time, and it does look pretty similar. The only real difference was the man's age. And, well, look at that. Here's a big doofy old letter of the guy claiming to be wearing makeup and hide his identity. Why do I keep doing an accent? Hey, buddy, here's another interesting piece of evidence. And this, like the only Jim Carrey movie I never bothered with, has to do with spooky numbers. Social security number. It's all 23. As if it's imitating my life. You've concerned yourself with minutia and you've drawn wild conclusions from... Not pictured with the famous scan of the letter is a number code on the bottom. That number is 71717-634. The number. Okay, hey, it's me in the present uh, past. I just noticed something weird. Uh, all of the articles that I've read, literally every single article that I've read, says that the number is 71717163 and they even say quotes from the FBI about the number and how it was hard to crack or whatever. But if you look at the page that I have open right now uh, on YouTube and you are if you're on YouTube it says 71717164. Uh I don't know what the deal with that is. I just thought I'd point it out. I know it's not helpful but you know all right, back to past, past me. Oh, man, that pop filter's not doing a good job. Does it mean something to you? The FBI didn't understand if there was any significance to this number, and for good reason. It doesn't seemingly correlate to absolutely anything. But add in Rackstraw and some context from the letter, and maybe it does. You see... Rackstraw was a pretty hardcore military man. He was in that life, and he moved between different agencies within it before going off to Vietnam. Then in 1971, a few months before the skyjacking, he was kicked out of the military for being a lying liar face. He lied about his education before joining, he lied about his medals he acquired, and hell, he lied about his actual current fucking rank. If he faked a shitty British accent and looked like a humanoid job of the hut, then he'd be the second coming of L. Ron Hubbard. 
and like L. Ron Hubbard, maybe being a sociopathic lying liar face who was caught in a lie caused him to go and goof big time, like, say, robbing a shitload of money from the government and jumping out of a plane and creating the only unsolved skyjacking in American history. To wrap this up, okay, so he seemed pretty upset and full of anger about being kicked out of the military, reportedly, which he seemed pretty enthused to be a part of, but... What does that have to do with the numbers? What does that mean? He According to Colbert, or Colbert, depending on, I guess, if he's... Who cares? And a new member of the research team, Rick Sherwood, who also served at the same time in the military, the numbers correlate to his units he served in Vietnam. They found that these numbers are a basic code and are actually the numbers for the 371st Radio Research Unit, the 11th General Support Company, and the Army Security Agency, all very specifically units Rackstra was a part of. So if this can be substantially verified, which is not up to me, this would link Rackstra to the letter. Interesting, if true. The letter's details link to a small bit of information about the lack of fingerprints to D.B. Cooper, and bingo-bango all that other stuff about him being skilled at identity fraud and an expert parachute guy mixed together to make the sweet, savory gumbo of motherfucking truth soup, bros. Get some garlic bread and dip that shit. Or, it's all bullshit. Update. As of early 2018, Rackstraw is cooperating with film producers of a documentary on D.B. Cooper, saying, quote, They're paying me to tell the story they want to hear. Maybe don't be such a dick about it, and just say it wasn't you if people accuse you of stealing money and jumping out of a plane. What the fuck is wrong with you? Still unsolved, but new information is forthcoming. All right, boom, bop, dips, and beeps, bops, let's fucking... <laughs> what? All right, kids, let's go into story number two. A little ditty about John and Diane, two American adults who fucked up in the worst they can. In May of the original running of Unsolved Mysteries, they told a story about Diane Broadbeck, a charity worker who exchanged letters with convicted killer John Yount. They became lovey-dovey pen pals, you know, like insane white trash people do. On April 5th, 1986, Diane Broadbeck disappeared, and John Yount escaped prison. Her mom said there's no way she could have done it, and Diane's husband was like, oh yeah, that motherfucker's guilty. Events as depicted on the show. Show update. John and Diane were captured under assumed names. They were identified with the help of viewers who recognized them. Yout went back to prison to serve his life sentence, and Diane, I wrote Diana, oops, I got Wonder Woman on the mind. I got Wonder Woman's body on the mind. Oh, I'm such a chauvinist. Diane got two years in prison for helping him escape and aiding a felon. <coughs> I'm suffering for my art. <coughs> oh, Jesus. <coughs> So that's pretty much all the show said because it was just an update, but I've got more some stuff for you. So let's back up. April 28th, 1966, John Yount, a high school math teacher in Dubois, Pennsylvania. Is it Dubois or Dubois? You know, in Indiana, they say Dubois, which is wrong, but you know. Anyway, Dubois, Pennsylvania offers to drive a student home from school. That student was one Pamela Reimer, age 18. 
She entered his car and they drove off campus. And that was the last time anyone ever saw Pamela again. Later that day, some school books are found by the side of the county road. They're Pamela's and her body is later found nearby. Pamela had been hit with a wrench, raped, and had her throat cut. Her body was discarded in the woods. Yeah, this is where the podcast gets less fun, everybody. The next day, John Yount confessed to the rape and murder of the girl. He was later sentenced to life. About 20 years passed. John Yount becomes a model prisoner, a teacher in the prison school, an organ player, and learns computer programming. Enter Diane Broadbeck. Diane Broadbeck, age 43, married with two kids. She was a former bank manager and had an interest in psychology. She's an outgoing community member involved in church groups and belongs to several community groups. One of the groups she became involved with would write letters to prisoners with no family or friends. This is how she finds John Yount. Broadbeck's friend was Yount's pen pal, but for some reason she stops writing to him and Broadbeck takes her place. This is around 1982. Eventually she goes to visit Yount in prison. Yount is moved to a prison two hours away, and Broadbeck continues to visit him, eventually seeing him once per week, four-hour sessions, the maximum amount of time you can visit someone in prison. She is later seen hugging and kissing Yount. The guards just assumed they were together. Well, I guess they were. Suddenly, Yount decides his trial wasn't fair, and even though he confessed to the murder and rape, he files appeals for a new trial. They are, of course, denied because fuck you. Thank you, Supreme Court. 1985. Yount officially declares his love for Broadbeck in a little love note and talks about how he wants to escape prison, you know, to go visit her. Remember when I said Yount was a model prisoner for like 20 years? Well, he had been given the freedom to work unsupervised outside the prison grounds in the I don't know, gardening area or something? And on April 6th, 1986, he disappears while on work duty. Diane was last seen driving towards the prison area. After Diane had been gone for a while, her husband immediately seemed to suspect she'd run off with Yount. It's unclear, both from the show and from the stuff I've read, how much he knew about their relationship, but it had later been discovered that she had put a car in storage for her escape and started a secret bank account in which she kept $7,500 U.S. dollars. Remember, that's like $17,000 in 2018 money. After pulling phone records, it was discovered that they, the night before, had a long phone call where Diane had made a call to the prison where Yount was in custody. Charges were brought against her, and of course, they were eventually captured thanks to an Unsolved Mysteries fan named Don Humphreys calling the tip line. Y'all got humped! You basically know the rest already. Except two thingies. Thingy one. Diane was captured and her family posted her bail of $250,000 in property in September of 1988. By this point, she was still married, had two older kids and one grandchild. She stayed home with her husband while she awaited sentencing. Man, it's gotta be fucking awkward. Apparently her plan was to just go back with her family, admit she done goofed? It's unclear exactly how much she really knew about Yount's crimes, but come on, he's got a life sentence. Diane Broadback served a sentence of only two years, and was out in either 1990 or 1991, it wasn't really clear. Thingy too. When John Yount escaped, it was originally thought by many people that he would immediately kill and discard Broadback. 
Her car was found sometime after the disappearance, and it was thought very possible that she had just been killed and Yount disappeared on his own. Of course, this was not the case. Yount was returned to prison to serve his life sentence in 1988, and in 2012, at the age of 74, he was found in his cell with a noose around his neck. Maybe you should have just started there in 1966, Jonathan. One final note. Pamela Sue Reimer, the victim. Pamela was an honor student. She played in the high school band, and she planned to enroll at Penn State on a scholarship. When she died, she was buried in her prom dress, and her classmates laid their graduation tassels over her grave. When interviewed around the time of Yount's escape, her mother, LaVon Reimer, was quoted as saying, What he did just didn't end my daughter's life. It ended my life and my husband's life. LaVon had lost her son in a farming accident only a few years before the murder of her daughter. She lost both of her children. I have nothing, no children, no grandchildren. No one calls me to say, how are you, mom? She would later pass away in 2010. Here's why I think it's important to talk about this shit. This douchebag murdered a young girl and ended her life just as she was going to embark on adulthood. But he also took her from her community and family, a family that had already mourned the loss of a loved one. What the fuck is wrong with math teachers? Solved. Prisoner Yount and Aide Broadbeck were both captured and arrested. Story 3. Mysterious Deaths Don Henry and Kevin Ives, high schoolers whose bodies were run over by a cargo train. Only. Were they already dead? Events as depicted in the show. August 23, 1987. A 6,000-ton cargo train made its route to Little Rock at 52 miles an hour. The train passes through Bryant, Arkansas and the engineer, Schroyer, sees something on the tracks. That something turns out to be two young men. Schroyer blows the horn and hits the brakes, but the bodies don't move, and the train can't stop in time. The bodies were horrifically torn apart by the cargo train. Oh my god, two boys are on the fucking train tracks. It's fucking... Oh god, it's like the worst possible stand-by-me thing ever. Oh god. In the episode... On August 23rd, in the middle of the night, despite the best efforts of the engineers, a large cargo train runs over the bodies of two young men. The night before, both boys were hanging out with a group of friends and left around midnight to go to Don's house in a sweet Camaro, and Don went inside to talk to his dad. He explained to his dad that he was going to be spotlighting with a 22 caliber rifle. Here's where we need to take a little redneck break. Spotlighting is illegal in Arkansas and many other places because it's sort of dangerous as fuck. Basically, one guy has a handheld spotlight, and, and, or a really bright flashlight, and they shine the light at the animal. The animal will almost always stop and stare directly into the light, and in that moment, the other person will have an easy shot on the prey. It's a popular redneck hobby in rural America, and if you have any questions about it, you can ask anyone who chews tobacco about it, and they'll happily explain it. Anyway, at around 1 a.m., they're in the woods shooting at some food, and at around 3 a.m., the poor bastards in the train ran over the other poor bastards' bodies. The engineer blows the horn, and the boys don't flinch. The image of the bodies is frozen in Schroyer's mind. Two boys, side by side, parallel, so their legs are over the rail and their heads are near the other rail, in identical positions. They are covered in what appears to be a light green tarp, and to the side of the bodies appears to be what is later confirmed, a rifle. We just uh, passed over. Oh my God, my heart is breaking for this guy. What had caused the two boys to lie side by side on the railroad track? Why were they there? Well, apparently, 
They were wandering around spotlighting and got sleepy, so they laid down on the tracks. The state medical examiner, after an autopsy, said they each smoked approximately 20 marijuana cigarettes and were in a really deep sleep. Really. They closed the fucking investigation. The equivalent of 20 marijuana cigarettes. Holy shit, that's still... <laughs> okay. <laughs> they might have actually fucking smoked an actual bale of fucking weed. Holy fuck. Their parents immediately called bullshit because why would they lay down in those positions like that and cover themselves? And how could they be so baked that they wouldn't feel the train coming on the rails? They're touching the fucking rails. If you've stood within 10 feet of the tracks of a large cargo train going by, keep in mind... 52 miles an hour. They're not at a gate. It shakes your whole body so intensely it can cause vertigo. I know because I am a redneck from a rural area and when I was a kid we used to play down by the train tracks because we're dirt people. Also the train horn, which was facing them, reminder, is about 98 decibels. In the show they mention this fact and they mention it's about as loud as a jackhammer and... For fun, it's also about as loud as riding a motorcycle with no ear protection, which if you've ever done, you know, kind of sucks. They hired a private investigator, and he is given shit constantly until they all come together and have a press conference to try to reopen the investigation. It works. Richard Garrett, mustache expert, investigates. Further information is gathered, and after proper time and care is taken... The first claim by the medical examiner is proven way false. Instead of smoking around 20, the boys only apparently smoked around one to three weeds each, and even three weeds won't make you so unconscious and stupid that you lay on a train track and let it hit you because Cheech and Chong isn't real life. The new team also found that one boy was definitely already dead when the train hit him, and the other was unconscious. In July 1988, the grand jury reconvened and changed the causes of death to probable homicides. Next point of contention, the tarp. According to Garrett, all four people on the train are adamant that the boys were partially wrapped in a green tarp. The police claim no one mentioned a tarp, but all the men involved are super sure that they did. The tarp, however, was not found. And now, the twist. One week prior to the boys' deaths, Officer Danny Allen is patrolling the approximate area they were found. He was investigating a suspicious character wandering around in what appeared to be army fatigues. When the officer found him and stopped him to question him, he pulled a gun and shot into the windshield of his car and ran to the woods. Holy shit. Was he real-life fucking Rambo? Did he tell him to get out of town? Did he say, Holy fuck, he shot the police? That didn't happen to Rambo. It was like the opposite of what happened in Rambo. No one ever saw that man again. Just kidding, he was spotted again soon after. One week after. The same day as the boys went missing. In the same area. No problem there. Richard Garrett, the only other person who seemed to actually give a shit about his job, found this information possibly related to the bizarre deaths of the two young men. Furthermore, our big boy Garrett discovers that a eerily similar thing happened in 1984 about 200 miles away, where two other young men were mysteriously laying parallel on train tracks and both were struck at high speed. Coincidence? Possibly. Either way, the parents of these kids are still hurt by their losses. And the update at the end of the show proves, through analysis of Don's shirt, that he was stabbed with a knife before the train ran over his body. 
The cause of death was officially changed to definite homicide. As of the re-airing of this episode, the case was unsolved. All right, buddy, post-show updates. All kinds of crazy bullshit goes on behind the scenes in this story, and it's so big and weird and conspiratorial that I'm not even sure that I should even try to do it justice here. Cop out. Basically, where these boys were killed is a haven of all kinds of horseshit. Mysterious deaths, drug trafficking, shit like that. But let's back up a little bit. Remember the guy who said the boys were smoking tons of Mary Jane and she put them unconscious? Right. That guy is a power-mad dumbass, and his name is Dr. Malak. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's Malak or Malak. I don't fucking know. Dr. Malak makes a few insane claims on several deaths in the area, like how when one guy was found with no head, he claimed that the, he was killed by his own dog and his dog chewed his head off. Right. When the parents tried to get a second opinion on the drug content of the boys' bodies, he personally made calls and played interference to ensure that no one would give them that second opinion, allegedly. The first guy they went to after him said that he could verify that the tests were correct. How did he verify it? He knows Dr. Malak, and he knows he has a good lab, allegedly. Also, really, this is about the time they call the press conference. Okay, now shoot forward a little bit. This hotshot attorney named Dan Harmon, no, not that Dan Harmon, is all gung-ho to challenge Malak in court. Uh, he thinks it might get him juice and get state prosecutor. The death ruling is overturned, but even though Malak has fucked up tons of examinations and makes all these science fiction-ass claims about how fucking real life fucking works, it seemed like he was untouchable. He was not reprimanded. Nothing happened to him. Actually, something did happen to him. He was promoted. Guess who the governor was at the time, by the way? If you guess Bill Clinton, you're right. Hey, I've heard of that guy. You know who Bill Clinton was friends with? <laughs> no, no, surely not. Surely. They were friends. He said he was a good guy doing a good job. Funny thing about this case, too. A bunch of people who had been in the area and claimed to know things about the case ended up dying in weird ways. Like, stabbed to death in your own driveway ways. Keith McCaskill. A local bar owner and part-time meth dealer and police informant was that guy. He claimed to know what happened, and instead of telling his story to the court, well, stabbed. Maybe a coincidence. Maybe had more to do with the drug dealing part. Another guy, Gregory Collins, a guy who for sure had planned to present to the grand jury at the trial, was found dead with a gunshot wound to the head and a gun somewhere. That was ruled a suicide. The prosecutor and co-creator of Rick and Morty, Dan Harmon, was found to have been heavily involved in the local drug trade. Drug parcels were usually dropped off in the same general area as the boys were found, it turns out. A local woman named Charlene Wilson attests that Harmon was there, along with her, and Keith McCaskill that night, and they were all waiting for a drug drop, which were apparently dropped via small planes, I guess. Allegedly, the boys had heard about these planes making low-altitude flyovers, which is why they chose that spot to hang around, maybe. According to Wilson, she handed McCaskill and Harmon a knife. They beat the boys up, one of them was stabbed, and one of them was knocked unconscious. And then the group placed the boys on the tracks and drove away with the drugs. Allegedly. Dan Harmon was never a suspect in the case officially, and later became county prosecutor. Later, Harmon is finally caught dealing and possessing drugs, multiple times. As recently as 2010, he was arrested for selling morphine and hydrocodone. Linda Ives, Kevin Ives' mother, is still fighting the system even today. 
After numerous attempts at getting missing details and documents in the case via the Freedom of Information Act, she filed a suit in 2016 over the matter, and in 2017 it appears to have kind of started to pan out, but I can't find a solid source on that other than a shitty fucking Arkansas newspaper that makes you pay $3 for each article you read. Like, fucking really? For more information on this case, I suggest you check out the book Boys on the Tracks by Mara Leverett. I think that's how you said her name, and I hope I actually wrote that correctly. It has a lot of, like, rumory bullshit in it about how fucked up the town is and how the whole story reeks of a cover-up, and it also reproduces the confession letter written by Charlene Wilson. Which, by the way, was seen as somewhat legitimate, because why would you say, hey, by the way, I, I helped murder two teenage boys, and what would you get out of that? If you'd like to help Linda, uh, she has a GoFundMe to help pay for the investigation of the case that's still live on the internet now. Uh, they have a, a set of private investigators who are investigating the case. They're doing it pro bono, but certain things like requesting documents and, you know, living in hotel rooms and stuff cost money. So she set up a GoFundMe. I have the link uh, in the YouTube description if you're on YouTube right now. They have not hit their goal yet. So, you know, give a couple bucks or at least share the link. So, you know, might might do something nice for the family whose kids were killed. That really sucks. Unsolved. The investigation continues. Story number four. Fraud. Wanted. Babe Ruth's uniform and other memorabilia worth over $8 million in 1987, $17 million in 2018, has been stolen. Unsolved Mysteries wants your help. Legendary fat boy Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs and ate 58 slices of motherfucking pizza before he jogged 30 yards. Jesus Christ, you could just be like a fat sack of shit and smoke 10 cigarettes a fucking minute and just fucking be a fucking sports star, man. Babe Ruth's championship ring and Minnie Mantle's uniform have both gone missing. In today's dollars, with value calculated in the late 80s, uh, that is the just moving the dollar amount that was uh, projected in the 80s into 2018 money, they were worth the equivalent of about $150,000 alone. Uh, you get the idea. Ah, oh, shit. I don't care about sports, but I don't like people stealing shit. A man named Dennis Walker, a former teacher and memorabilia expert, seems to have disappeared with nearly priceless pieces of sports history, defrauding several investors and really pissing off your great-uncle Ned. Oh boy, don't, don't talk about the Cubs around old Ned. That really sets them off. Oh boy, I don't understand sports rivalries like at all. Can you find Babe Ruth's original outfit? It has uh, mustard and ketchup stains. It smells like alcohol and cigarettes. And if you put it to your ear, you can hear a bunch of men beating their wives. Events as depicted in the show. June 1980. Dennis Walker quits being a political science teacher because politics is for bitches. He was focusing how to not be a bitch, no, but how to get bitches. The answer was, of course, sports memorabilia. Oh, sorry, I'm in fat money. So Dennis, roly-poly Walker, shifts hard into investments and sets up his own firm and even sets up his own bank in a place called Tonga, which is a Polynesian sovereign state and archipelago compromising of 169 islands, 36 of which are inhabited. Walker actually does work seemingly legit for a while and manages a return of $7 million on investments to his early investors. It was an amazing interest rate of 25%. The only problem was the interest was in the form of a promissory that basically said, bro, I'll pay you next year. 
What does he do with the monies? He buys baseball cards. Thousand bucks for that fucking thing? They ain't no fucking Charizard. Soon, Medford, Oregon had its own sports hall of fame. Every piece inside? Purchased by Walker, Texas. I mean, Dennis Walker. And now the show goes to list the things that he had in his collection, and even as a non-sports guy, holy fuck! Several pieces from Pete Rose, including jerseys and gloves, signed, sold to him by Pete Rose himself. Pete Rose's diamond commemorative ring awarded to him for hitting 4,000. Original like new condition, 1933 uncut sheet of baseball cards. Super cool. Honus Wagner cards from 1910 worth $70,000 in 1980s money. Babe Ruth's New York Yankees uniform. Do you have to recite the oath for its power to seep into your body? After a year of mysteriously acquiring all of this amazing shit, the state of Oregon finally is granted a warrant to investigate Wheeler Walker Jr. here and see his papers because they don't make sense. They found evidence to prosecute him on the, quote, sale of unregistered securities. Immediately after, no one who worked with Walker would help the investigation. He filed a countersuit, and then he ignored several summons to appear in court. What's important here is that up to this point, his investors were being paid. He was paying them back in payments, not like lump sum, paid them back all their money, and then was paying the interest on top of that. So it appeared that he was making money on their investments and sending them checks. So they all opposed this reaction by the state. Now Johnny Walker is worried that the government is going to come for his stash. So he asks his employee, Sandy Sanders, a real name, to pack up his whole collection for him. Sanders said that he was more than okay with doing that, so it could be resold and reimburse their investors. And so the state couldn't get their cotton-picking hands on it. From getting their cotton-picking hands on it. His salty attitude about the state would later earn him a bite into his sandy taint. Not a professional comedian. Walker came and got it. And, up to this point, almost no pieces have been recovered since. Walker was never seen again. But Charles Lee was. About a year later, Charles Lee was found in a motel room bathtub with no apparent cause of death in Las Vegas. Nobody could identify this Charles Lee, but the police did find a prescription pill bottle with a different name on it. You guessed it. Bill Cosby. You think we forgot, motherfucker? That's right. The one place you thought you'd never hear a tired-ass Bill Cosby joke, motherfucker. I remember you, motherfucker. You can escape this shit. Just kidding. It was Dennis Walker. His identity was confirmed... But now he died, and what happened to the sports memorabilia is still a mystery. Show update. Unsolved stated that, as of 2018, a few collectibles actually have come out of hiding, proving that someone somewhere had them, the most prized pieces of which were Babe Ruth's World Series ring and Yankee uniform. Updates after the show and further information! So, after looking around a few places... I actually can't turn up much more than the show already went into. But after a tiny bit of Googling and giving up, I did find a book called Collision at Home Plate about Pete Rose and Barg Giamatti. Barg Giamatti? It's supposed to be Bart? Barg? Inside there is a bit dedicated to Pete Rose's run-ins with Walker and his possible murder. The book claims that Walker's body was badly decomposing by the time the police arrived, and with no trauma marks left to see and no poison in his system, the cause of death was left unknown. But 
That left to speculation of suffocation, or possibly electric shock, as causes of death. This combined with his history of fraud, and the fact that he had, at the time, been using a fake name, and had millions of dollars in merchandise, led people to believe that he was killed, most likely by the mob. Motherfucker, don't steal shit. Solved unsolved. Walker and some of the stolen memorabilia have been found, but his cause of death and the location of the rest of the merchandise is still unknown. And that's it! Are you disappointed? Well, it's life, isn't it? Personally, I think this episode could have used more stupid ghost stories to shit upon, but that wasn't in the cards, especially since the story order is all jumbled up. And with that, we don't get goofy mystery story time this hour. Oh well. There's plenty of goofy shit upcoming, I'm sure. I have to say, as an episode, this one had slightly too much death and heartbreak, which isn't as nice to make fun of, but I did my best. Like, like 80% my best at least. 75. Anyway, this took me so long to finish, it's a whole nother year! I got married. I think I said that, and I'll be moving to Tokyo and starting a new job in the next couple of months, so I have absolutely no idea when the next episode will be up. I do know, though, that I've started a second YouTube channel for my sad, slow, ongoing project called Mecha Review. Oh my god, that's uh, gonna be a review show where I talk about giant robots and media, and it doesn't really fit with anything else I've done, so now that it has its own place, youtube.com slash mechareview. The first double-length episode of that show should be done in two months, but I said that a year ago. I have no idea, my life. Good lord. Anyway, now that the self-promoting bullshit, bullshitting updates are over, I release you. If you or someone you know has any information on the cases you have heard in this broadcast, please leave a comment below. Perhaps you could be the key to solving a mystery. Or not, you're just gonna go get a fucking latte at fucking Starbucks. God damn it, that actually sounds good. I got white mocha. White chocolate mocha. A little bit of cinnamon on it. Oh, fuck yeah. Footage and audio from the television show and Solve Mysteries is used under fair use. This show is not affiliated with the television show, and the footage and audio is used under a fair use without permission. Please support the Unsolved Mysteries by watching it from official licensed sources such as Hulu or Amazon Prime. Unsolved Mysteries is by NBC, CBS, Spike, Lifetime, and currently distributed by Film Rise. We miss you Robert Stack and Dennis Farina. Music by 3Chain linked from the album Phantoms used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Please see companion text for full license and link. Please visit 3Chain links on SoundCloud. If this is 3Chain links, please answer my fan mail. Goodbye.